You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am going to be your miserly host, Abraham. And I'm going to be your amoral banker, Shane. Before we jump into our topic, this is the last episode coming out in the year 2020. This comes out the day before New Year's Eve, so I hope that you have a very safe and fun and happy New Year's Eve, probably physically distanced from people and wearing a mask, but nevertheless, being safe and having fun. Yes, we need to kind of like celebrate this year ending, I think. <laughs> right. By blowing it up. By blowing it up. Like, we'll just, we'll, in history books, we'll just forget this year exists. Well, I don't know. There's some good things that happened towards the end. So maybe we'll just, we'll recognize this year was maybe problematic, but we'll be okay and we'll move forward. That's right. Yeah. It'll just be a, it'll be a thing that happens that we're going to move past. But anyway, this is the end. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Our next one, we will see you in 2021, which we're very excited about. So just wishing, well wishing for, for the New Year's partying that you may or may not be doing. Yep, absolutely. All right. We're talking about ka-ching, money. <laughs> money, 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 money. All right. So money, you know, that thing that you spend all of your time trying to get so that you can just turn around and trade it for someone else's Snickers. <laughs> That's what we're talking about today. We're going to focus on that. So much of what we're going to talk about today is taken from the book Sapiens by Israeli author. I'm going to butcher this and I apologize. Yuval Noah Harari. That's how I would read that. I think it's Harari. And so in the spirit of this podcast mission to offer consumable content of topics related to psychology and behaviorism, we are going to focus on this particular topic from this book about money and currency. And other resources as well. Yeah. And we're going to look at this from several angles. One is how an economy is formed why money became this globally adopted system and the behavior associated with the use of money. And so there's kind of a lot to unpack here because I think there's a lot that people have said about this because this is a topic that people really like for reasons we'll get into. And so, yeah, around the year 1500, global production of money was valued at $250 billion. Today, it is estimated at more than $60 trillion. And Jeff Bezos only has like half of that. Yeah, even with that, he's still... Probably trying to figure out how to get the other half. So in this episode, we're all going to feel slightly sad about being poor and slightly mystified at this strange system of I give you paper, you give me the Snickers. I don't know why I'm sticking yep. with Snickers, but you give me Pokemon cards. It works. It works. Whatever your goods of preference are. Right. Which that's an important feature of this, actually. All right. So let's talk about the history of this money. So originally what we found in early humans was a system of bartering. So if you're not familiar with bartering, essentially what you're doing is you're exchanging some items for other items. So for example, a baker who wants to cook a chicken for a family event might determine that seven loaves of bread is worth three chickens. And so what they would do is they would trade those goods with somebody else to get the goods they want. I would gladly give you some bread tomorrow for a chicken today. That's thanks. Uh, what's his name? I forget what his name was. That whole it was the guy who would who was like a con artist or something. He was so sneaky. He was so, he was always getting hamburgers. <laughs> That's, yeah, it was yeah the hamburger guy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call him that. Oh, that is the hamburglar. Is that the hamburglar? No, but that would be really funny. <laughs> Maybe inspired by that missed opportunities. So basically, what was going on is we needed an objective standard of value to avoid disputes because, I, as you can imagine, somebody might say, "Ah, your bread's not worth my chicken." And, you know, back when bartering was maybe more common, murder was probably also very common. So you uh, have dishonored me by giving me sourdough and not the bread that I wanted. And now I'm going to burn down your village. Like that could have happened. 
Yeah. Give me that wheat bread. I want white. It needs bleach. <laughs> that's it. I, I want that soft bread. Well, another thing that's really important in here, too, is the ability to make change. So let's say, for example, I needed some chickens that you had and I had a cow that you needed. Well, you didn't really need a whole cow. You're a bachelor living the bachelor life. And you're like, this thing's going to go bad long before I have a chance to use it. So like, how how does it make sense? You know, if I give you some chickens and you get one cow out of it that you can't even use the whole thing that may not feel fair to you. And I'm like, sweet, I got rid of the stinky cow. I've got these chickens are going to lay all these eggs so I can make all the omelets that I want. And so it seems like there's no way to really make change in a deal like that because the cow is just a cow. I don't know. You're not going to get a nickel's worth of cows. So, but I think part of too, like the bartering system was really interesting. It did rely on personal connections, right? So you had to connect with people. There had to be reciprocity, right? So it couldn't just be, I'm going to get this cow. I'm going to get this chicken. It, it had to be a back and forth. And basically how do you deal with exchanges with strangers or cross communities where trust is not already existent, right? You don't have the ability to exchange goods with somebody that you've never met, or you don't have the ability to, you don't trust those people. You don't have personal connections with those people. So the bartering system started to kind of fall apart when you realize that you couldn't really trust the people that you were bartering with. And so that's where money comes in and money starts to solve those problems of now we have a standard currency that we can use and exchange across multiple settings instead of having that one relationship with that one person to get goods from. Right. And money allows us to evaluate a basis of price for the value of something for individual or bulk units of some kind of good, be it tangible items or it can be something like labor or even to simply store one's wealth and sort of hoard it away. So imagine you're a personal injury lawyer and you want to redo your kitchen. How do you determine how many hours of legal work is equal to seven new cabinets and a backsplash? And what if your contractor hasn't injured themselves? Then you don't really have anything to offer. Your legal <laughs> advice is worthless. So again, money solves this because you can trade something of value that is of immediate use to the person who is doing, who is then providing their services for you. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting because what money has done is has put almost like a value on time and services, right? Like, so that's kind of, that's something that it's, it's helped kind of mitigate where that wasn't something that existed as well or as clearly before. All right. So I had a lot of fun digging into the history of this. So I'm going to go over just a few more fascinating, at least the fascinating to me tidbits. So one of them is that one of the, one of the earliest forms of some kind of currency and economy that we can find was cowrie shells. And these, I believe, came out of pretty much only the Maldives. I think that was the only place that they could be found. And they were very plentiful there. And so in the Maldives, they would just have tons of these things lying around. They weren't worth a lot. But the further away from the Maldives that you got, the more valuable those, sh those shells became as a trading commodity. So a person could establish a business where they went to the Maldives, paid some small amount in food or whatever they would trade for and get just a ton of these cowrie shells and then take them back. And they were largely traded and used in like India and China and some of these Asian places. And they were worth a ton in those regions. And again, the further away from the Maldives that they got, the more valuable they became. So they would, they would trade these cowrie shells for enormous amounts of, of wealthy items that they could again, take back and get more cowrie shells for next to nothing. And so someone could have an entire business where that was all that they did. So there was one part of it. Another piece of this history that's super interesting is when we started to actually get some amount of uniform coinage. And there's a little bit of controversy around when this took place, but it was definitely BCE, so before our current era. And the two places that, that historians attribute the rise of 
coins as currency are in Lydia, an ancient kingdom in what is now Western Turkey. And then there are some disputes that this may have arisen around the same time in China, or maybe slightly after or slightly before. In Lydia, there were these bean-shaped pieces of electrum, which were sort of this mix of gold and silver. And these were stamped with a specific symbol on them. And what was useful about that is then it didn't actually matter what size the coin was. It would have the same amount of value regardless of its size or weight if it was if it had that stamp on it that was sort of the fiat, which is to say like it was decreed by the government to have some kind of value. And so that that was one of the earliest places. And now in the Chinese culture, there's really interesting that their form of currency were these knives and spades and other tools that were used for currency. And they were designed with these little hooks so that they could be carried around on like a, a piece of thread. So they were difficult to steal and it was an easy way to store them. And so that's actually why some of the currency that you'll see has a hole in the middle is because historically that was because it was kept on a, a string or a small rope or that sort of thing. And as I understand it, these, these tools got smaller and smaller so that they were increasingly portable and they became useful as a form of currency where it was just trade this tool for other goods. And so you would actually have a ton of tools and you would acquire more tools so that you could trade them for other goods that you might want. It was kind of interesting. (laughs) Ah, the world, human beings, man. Right. And so it really wasn't until we got into the 17th century that Europeans began using a paper sort of thing to represent money. And these essentially started as these what are called banknotes. And that was that the bank said, essentially, this piece of paper is worth this amount of has this value according to us. And so sort of a promise that whatever is written on this banknote is how much this piece of paper is worth. And then essentially it got turned into the government's declared, you know, how much a piece of currency was worth. And then that that would just be honored by the government. And because it was honored by the government meant that it would also be honored by other establishments around there. And that's as far as I'll go in the history for the time being. But I thought that was all super interesting. <laughs> you hang with me through that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm here. I mean, because I think it's I think it's interesting how like a system will evolve to kind of make that stuff work, right? Like thinking about just the idea of a banking system that had to emerge for a banknote to occur. And then for like our modern economy to exist today, there has to be a system of of exchange that is so complex compared to trading chickens for loaves. Yes, very much so. And depended on a lot of processes that people didn't understand, but were nevertheless using. And actually, you set that up as a really nice segue into talking about sort of the process by which this works. In order to understand how money works, you have to understand that it doesn't really mean anything unless it is linked to something that you can get for it. So it's something that's called a condition reinforcer. And essentially what that is, is paper doesn't really mean anything to a baby right? Like a baby's going to come out of the womb and not really care about paper money. They'll eat it. They'll eat it, which is cool. I mean, I guess if you want to deal with that constipation, but <laughs> what ends up happening is it gets linked up or related to goods and services. It gets related to other things that we like. And so ultimately what ends up happening is as I get money, I can exchange that for things that I want. And so it becomes this really cool thing that we want to earn more of because more money means that we get more things that we like, right? That was an important distinction there is that there was actually a practical reason to move away from currency that was it functioned as money because it had inherent value, things like food and tools and that sort of thing. Because as we've talked about, there are many situations in which you need to trade things of value that 
have a more universal value and can be parsed into small units so that you can sort of make change and you can you can have some semblance of fairness going on that people are okay with. And just going back to what you said, essentially with that conditioned reinforcer idea, you basically have some kind of thing, some item, or even some kind of exchange that could take place that works effectively for someone. They're willing to make that exchange because the tangible item or the, the service you're exchanging is associated with a universal relation to access to other things. And that's that's basically what a conditioned reinforcer is. And money is the the most universal of all of those things. When you go to any country, when you go to visit anywhere, having money means that you access the things that you need in that space. Right. And so this is a question of how do we get this money? And despite what some may believe, it does not, in fact, grow on trees, although a logger may disagree with that. There's a whole process. Yeah. Loggers will turn trees into money, sort of. I mean, they'll sell trees, so they'll get money for it. (laughs) But with these conditioned reinforcers, we're talking about something that is often referred to as a token economy or a token system of reinforcement. And essentially what that is, is it has three components. There are a list of behaviors, and this is what behaviors will produce tokens, so it'll result in tokens. There are a number of tokens that are available for a particular behavior. So how much is any one unit of that behavior worth? And then there's a menu of potential backup items for which those tokens can be exchanged. And so what's really interesting about this is most people are specifically trying to get other people to voluntarily give them those tokens. And so that list of behaviors, that first part we talked about is huge, but for almost everybody, you are trying to get other people to voluntarily give you their tokens so that you then have those tokens. And what you might do is you might offer them entertainment by like, hey, I'm going to tell you a whole bunch of jokes. And if I do this really well, I want you to give me your tokens. And that's like a stand-up comedian. Or it might be someone who's like, hey, your leg is broken. I'll fix that for you, but you need to give me all your tokens and probably all the tokens for the rest of your life. And that's how our medical system currently exists. <laughs> and That's also how our college system works. Yeah, yes, exactly right. Like, I'm going to teach you all the things that you can learn from books, but you need to give me all the tokens you're ever going to make. <laughs> all the tokens you're ever going to earn. And, and yeah, that's how college works. That's exactly right. So anyway, a really interesting system that's set up. And it's just, it's very different from how some of the other things work. I mean, you know, driving, we don't have that kind of reciprocity. You know, it's just get out of my way. I'm, I'm coming through here. Right. So yeah, this, this idea of money, this currency, it's backed up by a huge amount of things because then we can use those tokens and we can voluntarily give them to somebody else and they'll give us stuff. So it's like, Hey, I was able to rub your back for a while. You gave me a bunch of tokens. I went out and gave those tokens to somebody else who gave me a bunch of food. And then I went and and ate that food. And now my tokens are gone and they're going in the toilet quite literally. (laughs) And that's actually a really important point. It's like when we talk about these tokens, we talk about money. Money is just this really cool token that just leads to these really cool things that we get to access. And that is what gives money value is what it's backed up by. And and basically what you can do is you can exchange money for virtually anything from a car, a six pack, a PlayStation five. If you can find one right now, (laughs) all the way to guns, sex and drugs, or even a ride on a future commercial spaceship, which is starting to exist. We can do all of those things. Money is backed up by all of those things. That, that token that we have means that we get to do those other things, which are so cool. Yeah, and I mean, unfortunately, at least according to the Beatles, money can't buy you love. But as we said, so just to repeat ourselves, it can buy sex. But, you know, maybe sex isn't always love. We digress. We love, don't judge, and neither do we. So, yeah, 
<laughs> money can buy i mean it, it can't buy pretty much any tangible good or service or even maybe some intangible ones i mean you could you could certainly buy people to pray for you so like that's an, an intangible but i guess it is maybe a service so but you can pay for pretty much anything and you can think of you know how you use money to get those things and obviously there are things that we have a cult as a society as a human species really have decided we are not okay with being able to buy these things so for example we are not okay with you using money to buy things that exploit humans that are part of vulnerable populations and some people do this still but we prosecute it when we see it right absolutely absolutely that was a very um diplomatic way of going about that thanks i tried so we keep talking about these tokens and we keep talking about money and all this all these things but there are different forms of money and this is really important to recognize and abraham brought it up earlier about the cowrie shells and all that but according to harari quote anything that people are willing to use in order to represent systematically the value of other things for the purpose of exchanging goods and services end quote technically could be money Right. So that could be things like coins, bags of barley, seashells, cigarettes. I mean, cigarettes are used in token economies in prison systems, right? They, they, you'll see that happen where cigarettes are exchanged for other things like food from commissary and stuff like that. Right. So essentially any tangible item may function as currency so long as it is accrued for any given behavior or any response that we talked about and exchanged for other things, other preferred items, other tangibles, other services. So basically anything you could, you could use anything as a type of money, as long as you can exchange it for something else. And as long as it's earned for behaviors, right? And so a variety of items have been used throughout history that led us to that conventional bill and coin setup that we find throughout most of the development world, the development, the developed world, I should say, where, you know, most places have paper currency and some kind of coinage to go along with it. Yeah, and as you said, even in prisons and POW camps, they can use cigarettes as a form of currency, which is fairly common. Right now, they might be using things like hand sanitizer or masks as a form of currency. Uh huh. And prices of items become worth, you know, so many numbers of cigarettes, and a microeconomy is formed within that environment. So. When we talk about currency, we have to ask the question, why coins? Because coins seem kind of cumbersome when you think about it, right? If you have too many coins, it's kind of loud. You have to carry them around with you. But something more practical as far as coins go, like it was easier to carry around overall. It was easy to transport. And it lacked that intrinsic value that something like a chicken or bread or shelter might have, right? So those things like those things, those tangible items that you're trying to get have some kind of intrinsic value. And in, in themselves are really valuable where coins are not. So you had to have something that could be that you could kind of represent something that di that didn't have that same level of value. Like it's going to hurt more to lose a chicken if that's what your food source is, than it will be to lose a handful of coins. And so having coins kind of took away that really painful loss when you did lose them. Like if you're on a roller coaster and they fall out of your pockets. And something else that was kind of nice about some of the metal that was chosen for some of these coins is that it was not super practical in a lot of ways because silver, for example, it was too soft to be used as a tool. It had no imperative for survival. Thus, it is small enough to be reproduced in the coins, easily handled and trusted to be backed up by other things. So we just sort of agreed that silver is stamped with something is going to be worth something stamped with some icon by the government or by the king or whatever is going to be worth something and then we all trade that silver using the same system of value there was another interesting piece of history in here which is do you know milling what milling is on coins i didn't before you told me about it okay <laughs> <laughs> we did talk about this before we hit record but this idea of milling is where if you notice on coins there's a sort of like edge that goes around the coin that's sort of like a lip that's 
crinkled, if you will. And it could be flat or could have those little divots in it. But anyway, this was because what people used to do is when they had coins that did not have that edge is they would just shave off little pieces of the metal from that coin and they would collect it and they would make more coins out of it. And they basically would just make their coins smaller and smaller because they basically had said if it's got this icon on it, then it has it has the same amount of value no matter how much it weighs. And people are extremely inventive (laughs) at finding ways to circumnavigate the system. Yeah. And so like they will find a way around what the system is supposed to be. So, I mean, it's one of the coolest things to see is like when it comes to something that has the kind of value that money can have because it can be traded for anything, you see human inventiveness just jump up by leaps and bounds. Absolutely. So they used to shave off the metal. They would gather that metal to either sell it or make their own coins. And so what the governments would figure out to do is they put these little mill edges around it so that if those were removed, that coin no longer had that value. It showed that people had been tampering with the coins and prevented them from doing that. It's the little things, you know, now when you, when you go to a bar, when everything opens back up and everything is safe, now you have a Snapple cap trivia bit. You can be like, Hey, why, you know why this, this lip is here on this penny? It's so that you can't tamper with it. That should be your new pickup line. It'll work. I think in this, in this day and age, I think anything will work given that 2020 has been so bizarre. That's right. You're a human. (laughs) I am also a human. Let's get together. Here's an interesting fact that I learned on a podcast. All right. Let's talk about what is going on here, but beyond just what's observable in money. So, although movies show us briefcases, suitcases, complex vaults with stacks and stacks of cash and velvet bags of coins, this is really a poor image of what the global economy actually looks like. So, Harari estimated in 2014, in a publication in 2014 of Sapiens, that the value of all global money was about $60 trillion. That's a lot of money. It is. And again, Jeff Bezos has about half of that. Now, as expected, this number has significantly increased even since then. But an accurate number is difficult to generate and is subject to any number of variables and considerations when calculating. So, for example, upon writing, despite the value of $60 trillion, Harari noted that the sum total of all coins and banknotes at the time only valued around $6 trillion. So where's the rest? Where's all that money? It's probably at Amazon. (laughs) That's right. buried in amazon vault no actually i mean (laughs) what's interesting is that there are still things other than money that we're treating with value and now we have moved into time when most of the remaining balance exists as electronic data and so the the remaining 54 trillion dollars in money is just numbers on a screen so shifting hands that almost never actually hold a physical representation how often After you get a paycheck, Shane, do you actually hold money in your hands that you then give to somebody else? Very minimally. I hate carrying cash. Yeah. Basically, I could probably count on one hand the number of cash transactions I make in an entire year. And probably 99% of all other transactions are just numbers that go from like this account to this account in somebody's computer data system. Yep. Absolutely. So it's worth asking the question, how is this a system that is maintaining and it maintains because we place an enormous amount of trust in the system. Yeah, absolutely. And so that brings us to how money works when in regard to trust. Now, this is one of the biggest kind of and more interesting ironies of the world. Despite all of our political, religious, and ideological differences, like Palestinians and Israelis, Christians and Muslims, Democrats and Republicans, North and South Korea, China, Russia, and the U.S., ISIS, and literally the rest of the world, we <laughs> all seem to agree on the value of the dollar. And the dollar or whatever that currency is, 
in order for that to work, there has to be trust across all of those different political and, and spiritual and, and religious ideologies. Yeah, I mean, conventional trust in the global economy is a substantial and unusual dynamic to exist among humans. It's really quite an achievement. This is opposed to simply believing in money itself. And Harari says that, quote, money asks us to believe that other people believe in something, end quote. And the shared belief system transcends culture and borders in a really remarkable way. And so I've heard someone say before that, like, the only reason that we use money is this idea of faith. And while I think that is part of it, the reason that we have faith is because we're all continually willing to make the trade of one piece of arbitrary good, which is like money, for a other type of good, which is like a PlayStation 5 or the new Xbox. So anyway, the point being that I think you could call it faith, but or you could call it trust. And I just we don't want to miss the point that the reason that there's trust is because we we just keep agreeing that we can trade this thing for this other thing. And you could decide that you're like, you know what? That money doesn't actually have any inherent value for me. I'm not going to accept that. But the problem is that even though you decide that you're not going to accept it, everyone else is going to. Right. So it kind of doesn't matter. It kind of doesn't matter if one person or even a thousand people lose faith in that system as long as most people still do. It's almost like almost like herd immunity for like the value of yeah. money, if you will. Yeah. And that's how we end up with Bitcoin. <laughs> yes. Well, and that's actually that's that's such an interesting thing because with Bit what Bitcoin, what's interesting about it is they never tried to establish what the value of it really was. It basically was valued against other money markets, and it was 100% borderless. No government ever issued Bitcoin. It was just a bunch of people who came up with the code of the blockchain code for Bitcoin. And so it was 100% electronic. But what was nice about it, it was 100% universal. And it was anybody anywhere that would pay Bitcoin would be treated as the same value for as anyone else anywhere. The problem was the value fluctuated for everybody. Right. And so it was hard to, to say. And again, it was always stacked up against other forms of currency. So I think the idea was solid. The execution just never quite got there. Right, right, right. Absolutely. So when we talk about this idea of trust and all that, there's this issue of what we call history of reinforcement. And basically what that means is that whenever we exchange money with somebody else or whenever we exchange with other governments or whenever we kind of in order to establish this trust trust is established because we have made continuous and consistent exchanges that have worked right so so what ends up happening is is that these contingencies right there's there's follow through i say i'm going to buy this thing i buy this thing you say you're going to trade this thing for this money and you do that that it works and because you follow through on it debts get paid credit gets offered and, and money is backed by anything that we can imagine so the system persists because we continually see that back and forth reciprocity we see that working system and it works so consistently that we develop this really cool history of learning with it. Right. And we're all willing to keep engaging with that same system. And so when I go back to another example, and as we mentioned, money has no intrinsic value itself. So if you think about, for example, if we were to complain that our worst nightmare is this unfathomable hospital or being conned out of losing our life savings or going to grad school and sinking into just unimaginable student loan debt, it has nothing to do with the actual bills and coins associated. It's the possibility of not having access to the very essential things in life. So like we've basically all of those tokens that we have, we've traded them away. So now we can't trade those tokens for shelter and food and healthcare and, and basic safety and support. 
And so those are little scenarios that keep people awake and wondering at night. And actually, at the time that we're recording this, shortly after Thanksgiving here in the United States, there's a group of people that I know who they put together, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks maybe to just buy some groceries for people for Thanksgiving for families who didn't have money to. And I guess it was brought to the attention of other people. And then just like hundreds of people reached out asking for help. And then this huge group of people who were willing to donate assembled and they all put their money toward it. And that ended up buying meals for like 50 families or something like that, or maybe more. I don't remember now, but people were willing to pitch in some amount of money that bought groceries for people to have some food who were struggling with this because of the global pandemic that has completely crippled our economy. It's one of those things where the system still persists, even with a crippling pandemic. Yes, because again, we're all just continually willing to accept those tokens in exchange for our goods and services, because when we get those tokens, we can turn around and trade them again. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So when we talk about trust, we have to ask the question of how much trust is involved and what does trust look like and what systems are in place to actually kind of like maybe quantify trust. And that's where the the idea of credit comes in. So the foundation of credit allowed an economy to escape the confines of whatever product that it had given at the time. So essentially what that means is, is that credit allows a bet to be made on the future value of anything, a product, a business, a country, an individual. And that's how we end up with credit cards, right? They're basically saying, I trust you with this amount of money and I expect you to pay it back. Now, Part of the reason that credit works is because there's an accountability component to it. But the idea is that money is being lent to people. That's what student loans are. Student loans are essentially credit. A mortgage is essentially credit. When you buy a house, it's essentially credit. And Harari actually goes further and says, quote, credit enables us to build the present at the expense of future income. And that just makes potential growth limitless. That says, hey, you know, I'm going to have this money eventually, but right now we're going to go ahead and build this house. We're going to get this car. We're going to get this degree and do all these in the present time with this line of credit and this future income that we're going to have later. And this actually goes back thousands of years. The Babylonians used clay tablets to keep track of lending, the idea of lending saying, okay, like I'm going to go ahead and give you these chickens now. And I'm going to say that like, I'm keeping a, a, a note in my book that says you owe me a cow later. And so then they started creating the system. The Romans further developed this to include this lending system where they, they would, again, they would basically promise some amount of money and say, okay, like you get this amount of goods, you have to return them. And of course, somewhere along the line, we got this idea of interest of like, I'm going to lend this to you, but you need to give me back even more than I lent to you because I can take advantage of the fact that you're in need of something. Now it becomes its own business, a little bit of a predatory one. But really interesting nonetheless. And the fact that it goes back as far as it does, the idea of credit cards is just a modern take on a very old idea. It's funny how it just kind of like gets new names. Right. So in Sapiens, Harari offers an accessible scenario for explaining how credit forms for better or for worse. So let's just say Alan starts a bank. Shane earns a million dollars cash for contracting work and puts the cash into Alan's bank. Alan's bank now has a million dollars cash and Shane has a balance of one million dollars. Abraham needs money to open a business. So he asks for a loan from the bank. So Alan's bank lends Abraham $1 million and pays Shane for the contracting work. But Shane ends up charging more. Abraham takes more loan out. So Abraham pays Shane $3 million for a job. And all of that, Shane takes and deposits back into Alan's bank. So Alan's bank has a $1 million in cash, but Shane has $3 million of balance. 
And so there's this collaborative trust to back all the money and an understanding that if any given party needs the money at some point, then they will have access to the money. And all the while, the bank is the one that's sort of leveraging these two accounts off of one another. And of course, banks don't just have two accounts. They use millions of accounts, and that's how they're able to leverage so much money. And it sounds complex, but it's really just a matter of promises, right? That's essentially what it all comes down to. It's a promise for this thing that's going to come down in the future. Now, if you imagine the value of all the money that existed prior to credit systems evolving, it could seem like a pie, right? And it's distributed however any given society dictated. However, the pie was finite and limited to the current products that created value. So within with the advent of the scientific revolution, innovation occurred at such a rapid pace that people became more forward thinking and an investment in the profits of the future became more a more viable endeavor. So you start seeing people investing in the future. You start seeing people extending that line of credit or doing more of that stuff because there was something really great on the horizon. Now, I think using the milling of coins as an example to sort of show that creating a system like this means there's going to be these sort of outward rippling effects that you don't necessarily think of. It's not so simple as let's get a system where people can trade tokens of equal value because as soon as you've got something that you can trade with that amount of value, people are going to try and get more of that thing obviously. Right. There is no point at which there is a limit is like, oh, I don't really need any more of this because I've got I've got as much as as I could possibly need. No, there is an infinite amount that people are willing to earn because it continues to retain its value even in extremely high quantities. And so it should come as no surprise, but your experience with money early in childhood has a substantial impact on your future spending habits, be it reckless or conservative with your money. And so it would be wise to teach children proper spending, saving, and investment habits from whatever age you feel comfortable doing so as a parent. So you can show them how to open a checking account, manage a debit card, maintain a steady balance, you have allowances, payment for chores, even sort of simulated investment accounts, if you will. All of these things contribute to a better and more responsible financial person and the more responsible behaviors as an adult. Right. So now here is where we enter the fun debate about why I needed to know the layers of the Earth's crust and what igneous rock or the quadratic formula are. But no one bothered to explain how insurance works, how to pay your taxes and budget your money, how and when to open a 401k or many of the other requisite skills. I mean, this is essentially what you're talking about is a lot of people have a hard time with money and they they have a hard time with budgets and spending. This is an economic system that we all exist in that we maybe don't have enough of an understanding about. Right. Like we all lack some kind of basic understanding on this giant economic system that is governing so much of what we do. These feelings of being sort of slighted, taken advantage of or denied certain items or opportunities might make someone more hesitant to spend as an adult if you had those experiences. Conversely, it might act as a motivator to succeed any shortcomings of your parents and work toward avoiding similar circumstances if you observe that. So, again, there's just there's a lot of experiences that we have that are going to shape the kinds of things that we bring to the table when we're now responsible for managing that kind of income. So, of course, it becomes harder and harder the more that difficult circumstances compound on top of each other, like vicious credit card interest rates. It gets to be a little bit complicated, right? Because there are more variables than just I have money and I can spend it. Now, opposites might attract. So according to Psychology Today, quotes Ken Honda, the author of Happy Money, saying, quote, for a saver, a spender looks so attractive because they know how to enjoy life, and a spender is attracted to the saver because they offer security, end quote. So there is hope for odd couples. Perfect, which is much needed, I'm sure. So, yes, Shane, do you save your money? I'm not very good at it. 
Okay. I'm going to be honest. I'm not very good at it. I grew up in a house where we didn't have a lot of things. So when we got money to spend on things, like we tended to spend it on stuff that like really enriched our lives. So yeah, not very good at saving money. All right. Well, that's a lot of people actually. And so why don't we save this money given that it has so much value? Well, there are some pre-pandemic figures about how Americans save, and this is coming from ABC News in 2019. Almost 40% of American adults wouldn't be able to cover a $400 emergency with cash, savings, or credit card charge that they could quickly pay off. Then this was found by a Federal Reserve survey. About 27% of those surveyed would need to borrow the money or sell something to come up with the $400, and an additional 12% would not be able to cover it at all, so didn't have any assets that would even amount to $400. And this is again according to the Federal Reserve's 2018 report on the economic well-being of U.S. households that was recently released. You know, when we kind of talk about that and we we provide that context, we also have to look at different hurdles, right? So there's student loans, high rents, mortgages, low wages, extra bills that we might not be necessarily privy to. And really top reason for not saving is expenses. Like people just have too many expenses. So for example, housing prices in cities that have quadrupled, top university prices have doubled since 1996. So that's a lot of money. People don't realize how much money goes into that. Salaries have stayed relatively stable. So basically what's happening is Prices are going up, but the salaries aren't really changing. They haven't really prepared middle-class millennials with the tools to stay afloat on top of that. So there are a lot of people who are coming up into adulthood that don't have any skills or experience with managing money or, or, or any sort of money or economic skills. So those variables all contribute to why people aren't saving. I mean, and these are things that they happen. Economies shift and change and grow and develop and evolve and move as different forms of currency come on, like things like Bitcoin electronic or different types of goods become available. And so there are many things that they haven't changed in price very much at all over the last 24 years or 25 years or even 30 years. And the prices have have remained kind of stagnant. But a lot of these really big ticket items, the things that cost a lot more, those have skyrocketed. The cost of living has generally increased while the cost of some goods has remained stable. And so I think some people look at that cost of goods and think, wow, things are so good now. Like I make this much money and this thing has not really changed price in so long. It's easier and easier to afford without really noticing how much more expensive other costs of living have become. And so it's just that I think there are people who don't really see the whole picture and are only seeing the part that tells this, the part of the narrative they're trying to spin on some of these things. So there are some, some ideas that behaviorism can offer to help us with our spending. And one of them is this idea of delayed reinforcement. And this is the long wait of long-term benefits, like a savings account or a retirement account. And these seem just phenomenally far away from you when you're 23. Just, you're like, no, not going to go there. I'll start saving when I'm 60. And there's people who are just making barely enough to survive. So again, coming back to the one of the reasons people don't save is because of the expenses that they have. And the last thing you're thinking about is being 65 and trying to retire. And so this is sort of going back to this, the marshmallow test, the one marshmallow now or two if you wait. And I think that's something I'd really like to dig into because more research has come out and that's definitely not as clear cut as they thought that it was. But people make these viral videos about that sort of thing. So that's a concept here is if you can work on that delayed reinforcement piece, then you can get people who are willing to put off the benefit of having money now for having money later. Another idea within this is is basically you have to ask the question, is the person's behavior more commonly based in impulsivity or self-control? And and what you'll find is people who tend to be more impulsive tend to be more sensitive to more immediate reinforcers, more immediate rewards for their behavior or for their spending, whereas somebody with self-control might be 
more sensitive to delayed reinforcement or or that delay in gratification or that delay in getting that preferred item. You see people kind of lump people into those two categories. Like, are they impulsive? Do they have self-control when it comes to money? And, it, and again, it's more complicated than that. It depends on how much money that person has at any given time. It depends on what their value is for those items or the tangibles or those experiences. So there's a lot of things that go into that. You can't just say somebody's impulsive, so they're not going to save or they have self-control and they are going to save. It really depends more on the context. So being technically precise, we're not saying that impulsivity causes somebody to be sensitive to needing an immediate reward. What we're saying is that when someone needs an immediate reward and we see them seeking that out, we call that impulsivity. It's not a cause effect thing. It's just a describer. And the same thing for self-control. Self-control does not cause someone to be willing to delay access to those rewards. It is when someone delays access to those rewards we call that kind of behavior self-control. And I think it's just, we're always make sure that we're being very technically precise in how we speak about these things. Cause it's easy to be like, okay, we need to increase people's self-control and not then worry about increasing their delay to reward when that's the thing you need to be working on because that is self-control. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's move on to, we talked a little bit about what you can get with money and the fact that happiness is not one of those things. And we're going to dig into that a little bit. So, There was a well-publicized 2010 Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. Wow, that is a long title. Really? That suggested that a salary of $75,000 served a unique threshold for predicting happiness. And the further below that level, the more unhappy people reported, no matter how much higher than $75,000, happiness did not seem to improve anymore. So you sort of had this sweet spot of right around $70,000, and that was the maximum happiness that you would feel. And again, this was 2010, so I imagine that number has climbed up a bit. but. Well, let's just dig into this. So basically what this did was it looked at two types of happiness. They looked at day-to-day moods and deeper satisfaction. Basically what the day-to-day mood was, whether or not you're stressed or blue or feeling emotionally sound within that moment on kind of a day-to-day basis. Like what does it look like moment to moment in your standard everyday life? But the deeper satisfaction component looked at the concept of how your life was going. Were you happy with how things were? Were there things and wants and needs that you weren't attending to? Or did you perceive your life being in a different space than it is today? And so kind of using those two indicators, they determined here's what happiness looks like at this level of income. So according to time.com, quote, researchers found that lower income did not cause sadness itself, but made people feel more ground down by the problems they already had, end quote. And I do think that that's kind of the main issue here is that it's not that $75,000 actually results in happiness and anything less than that causes unhappiness. It's the fact that in those situations, there is a certain level of financial security that is needed to reduce the burden of sort of the cost of living and general expenses. And when you can reach that threshold, then you no longer have those burdens. And of course, then that it's like you couldn't further unburden those as you increase from that threshold. You really only have the like, I have the security I need to be okay. And beyond that, it's you're going to have all the same problems as pretty much anybody else. So an important feature of this is understanding that uh, the role that the money actually plays there. For example, when they compared the well-being of divorced folks, the higher percentage of those who had made less than $1,000 a month reported feeling sad or stressed from the day prior than did the percentage of divorced folks who made more than $3,000 a month. So you'll see just like even in that space that people who have less money, they're making less money a month, probably have additional stressors. And it's not because they only have $1,000. It's because that $1,000 has to be stretched so thin to get their basic needs met. 
right? Like if I only have a thousand dollars, I still have to pay my electric bill, my water bill, my rent or my mortgage, my car bills, gas to get to and from work. I mean, there are so many other stressors that that thousand dollars is is really stretched thin compared to that three thousand dollars a month, which gives you a little bit more wiggle room to make sure that those needs are attended to and then maybe contact some other things that are preferred. And that three thousand dollars is what it costs to hire a divorce attorney, I guess. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> All right. So the article concludes that, quote, having money clearly takes the sting out of adversities, end quote. That's, I think, the way to say it is it just it it takes the edge off, if you will. So let's talk about this again, sort of giving into the behaviors here. So I think a way of thinking about this is that how aversive those circumstances feel, the stress of being able to manage your income by pay for groceries, pay your bills, pay your rent, that sort of thing. How aversive those things feel is mitigated by one's their basic environment, really their income. And so even something presumably traumatizing and arduous like a divorce can seem probably less aversive if you're grounded with a higher salary, because then those other burdens don't feel as intense as they would if you didn't have that financial cushion. And it makes sense when you think about that from like a logical standpoint, right? Like that's why people are too afraid to get sick, right? You're afraid to get sick and go to the hospital because you can't afford Getting sick becomes more of a stressor because you can't afford the bill. Like if you can afford the bill, then then going to the hospital or getting the treatment that you need is much easier because you don't worry about like that's not a meal you're missing or a bill that you know it's gonna end up shutting off your electric. So I, I get that makes sense, right? So like the more money you have, the less aversive those stressors become, I think. Right, exactly. Now that being said, having that seventy five thousand dollar annual salary doesn't remove all the aversive situations from your life. It's not gonna make that situation better. You can still get in a car accident. You can still lose belongings. You can still get mugged, have a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, but at least you're not worrying about the money related to it or like whether or not you can pay for those things that are, that are going to be aversive. So as Forrest Gump said, when Lieutenant Dan said that they didn't have to worry about money no more quote, that's good. One last thing. Awesome. <laughs> Loved it. Okay. <laughs> so the 75,000 also affords most people the ability to engage in those in leisurely activities or things that provide some social interaction, escape from the demands of work and child raising, that sort of thing. Absent of being able to also have those sort of those relieving things, which is afforded by having more money, is that all you have left is stressful situations. And this dramatically and drastically impacts how one feels about their quality of life. So not only do you have the security from having the, the additional money that supports not being stressed out about some of those other expenses, but you also potentially have access to some things that sort of are relaxing and feel good social type things that just Im improve how, I guess, easily your life is going. While money doesn't buy happiness, it maybe makes things a little bit easier so that you have more opportunities to be happy in a different space. There's less stressors to make you less happy, I guess. All right. So that sort of scratches the surface of money. I think there's a million things we could talk about, but let's go ahead and wrap it up there. This is, we've been doing this for, for almost an hour, and I think it's a good point to call it. Ready for some take-home points? Let's do it. All right. So according to Harari, quote, money is the only trust system created by humans that can bridge almost any cultural gap and that does not discriminate on the basis of religion, gender, race, age, or sexual orientation, end quote. In other words, money is woke AF, <laughs> as, they, as the <laughs> millennials say. As the Xennials are wont to say. So in clinical practice, we often use superficial tokens like SpongeBob, Sesame Street, poker chips. Like you'll see that in like some kind of like maybe school settings and on a much denser schedule than what you'll see in a, in a real world setting. Like what basically we get those, those reinforcers more often. We get those cool things more often, those tokens more often, but there is a functional way to simulate the traditional economy of working adults when we work with 
in clinical practice or we work with schools, we work with children. There's a way to simulate that in a way that's meaningful and helpful to kind of get somebody the basic skills to move into a, a real world larger economy. And although there are systematic procedures to thin that density, thin that schedule and minimize the invasiveness of those more artificial tokens, it may be wise to move one of these individuals toward a more conventional money system as a means of preparing them to adapt to the world when they become when they gain more independence. Yeah, absolutely. So many Americans don't save money for a host of reasons. We both that that include both learned and in response to environmental contingencies, we kind of run into that situation. However, financial responsibility is likely something that can be functionally taught. We can teach that at a young age if we prioritized it more stringently and more systematically. If we planned that more effectively, then we could probably teach that in a better way. Okay, money cannot guarantee happiness, and although happiness is often subjective and difficult to explain using some kind of reasonable and fair metric, there seems to be a correlation of financial stability and a reduction, at least, of day-to-day stress. And so if you can make enough money to survive, potentially to have access to some relaxing, reinvigorating sort of activities, then everything else is just luxury on top of that. Yep, absolutely. I do have one more take-home point here, which is just that we... Say that the system depends on trust, and in a way it does, but what it really means is that we are consistently and continuously willing to exchange these tokens for some kind of good or service. And as long as people are going to continue to do that, then there is no disruption in faith that's going to matter to affect that system because we're going to continue to agree. And at this point, we've agreed now that even digital representations of those count as the same sort of tangible thing. And we're perfectly okay with that. And I think that in a way, this this seems to be potentially a really good thing because it's a little bit limitless and it has the potential to allow a lot of people to thrive. I think we do want to be careful that we're not standing on a house of cards, but it is at least a system that seems like it could work indefinitely as long as people continue to be willing to interact with the system. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Anything else from you? Nope. I don't have any other take on points beyond that. All right. There's a ton to know about money. I would highly recommend that you go out and read Sapiens as well as some other books. And speaking of recommendations, let's get to some real recommendations. Let's do it. Recommendations. Okay. My first one is going to be that, hey, it is the end of the year. 2020 has been a thing. So... Welcome to the end of 2020. Yep, you made it. Uh, Yeah, we made it. I hope you have a wonderful, safe, happy, healthy, physically distanced and masked New Year's celebration, hopefully online with some close friends and that sort of thing. That's sort of my general well-wishing. My actual recommendation is a movie I finally just watched, even though it came out a long time ago. I think it came out like over a year ago. And that is Terminator Dark Fate. Yes. And I thought this movie was just, it was really fun. It was really entertaining. And it is currently available, I think, on Amazon, maybe one of the streaming platforms. But anyway, it was fun. That one's a blast. I'm glad you recommended that. So my recommendation is going outside. And actually, not just going outside, but going outside and exploring your locale in a safe, you know, physically distanced and mass way. Yesterday, I went to uh, Ponce Inlet in the town that I live in, which is a little bit south, and went up into a lighthouse that had 203 steps, and my legs hurt. 
but I got to see the beach and I got to see some really great things and walking out on something called the jetties, which is kind of like an inlet, like a walkout on the inlet. I was able to see some dolphins playing with some surfers and it was a really, just really great, wholesome day. And I would not have seen that had I been inside doing nothing. So I just recommend going outside. And in Florida specifically, a structure that tall, you could see the curvature of the earth in all directions because it's just so flat. Yeah. I mean, unless you're part of the Flat Earth Society, then that's a whole thing. Yeah. If you're a part of the Flat Earth Society, you can actually... <laughs> so It's so flat at that point. Yeah. You can actually see the wall of ice that's at the end of the earth because there'd be nothing yeah. obstructing your view. You can actually see NASA from there. So, and, and you can see that they're guarding the wall. But for all of us who actually believe in science, we can actually see real things. Right. Otherwise, you should be able to see the Burj Khalifa from wherever you are. This is the tallest structure in the world. <laughs> all right. Anyway... Enough pot shots at the Flat Earthers for today. We'll, we'll have some more for you next time. But if you, yeah, yeah. If you'd like to take pot shots at the Flat Earthers with us, please leave a comment on any of our social media or leave us a rating and review with that. Feel free to contact us and we will read it on air for you. If you have money or you like to spend money or you have anything you'd like to say about money, feel free to contact us. Feel free to send us some of that money. That's perfectly okay, too. Yeah, that's cool, too. Speaking of which, you can join us on Patreon. That's a little subscription service where you give us some of those tokens and we give you some bonus content, including occasional bonus episodes uncut episodes videos of us recording in our pajamas Mm -hmm. and all that kind of fun stuff and also really helps us do this show and that sort of thing you can reach out to us as i said at info at www.wwdpodcast.com that's our handle at all the social media platforms as well and we would really like to hear from you and i think that is all i have this is abraham this is shane we're out see ya you've been listening to why we do what we do Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.